Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Carol Christine Fair, who is an associate professor in the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University. Her work is primarily focused on counterterrorism and South Asian topics. She was a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan and a senior search associate at USIP's Center for Conflict Analysis and Prevention. She has served as a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center and a senior resident fellow at the Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis. Welcome, Christine. Oh, thank you. Uh, I want to start with um, uh, some of your older papers, and these are all focused on Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to start with the one from 2012, and it's entitled Faith or Doctrine, Religion and Support for Political Violence in Pakistan. Uh, in which you say around the world, publics confronted with terrorism have debated whether Islamic faith gives rise to a uniquely virulent strain of non-state non violence targeted at civilians. Uh, these discussions almost always conceive of Islam in general terms, not clearly defining what is meant by Islamic religious faith. Um, you want to talk, uh, talk a bit about that paper and you know, the, the data that you might have used to uh, to get to some interesting, <laughs> interesting conclusions. Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you. Um, although I do want to tell you, actually, I've been promoted. I'm now officially a full professor. Uh, oh, I'm sorry <laughs> about that. No, no, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Um, so no. So this, as you said, this was. Uh, I mean, it was it was published in 2016, but it was actually because these things just take forever, right, to go through um, review and so forth. Um, so that it it was probably one of the first papers where we began looking at this question, although uh, we did, we have had more recent and more sophisticated uh, attacks at this, at this puzzle. But yeah. this paper was, you know, was really trying to figure out, uh, not figure out, I, I mean, this, if you look at the way the team is composed, um, you have basically Neil and Jake, they are quantitative political scientists. 
And the paper came out of sort of my intuition, having spent a lot of time in Pakistan. And for that matter, uh, I did my dissertation on the Khalistan insurgency. Uh, and there are a lot of similarities, actually, between the verbiage and the ideology and the the ways of imagining violence between Khalistanis as well as many jihadis. And my intuition was this isn't about faith. This isn't about piety. There's something else going on. And what had particularly concerned me was that um, not only outside of Pakistan, but also within Pakistan, uh, people began using shorthands to sort of make assumptions about people based upon how they were dressed. So, for example, um, if you saw that a, a, a woman, for example, was wearing the, the niqab, typically worn yep. by Salafist, people would assume that this woman must be more supportive of terror. Or men who were wearing their pants, including their suits, uh, to be above their ankles and and wearing the beard that Salafists wear, which you know, typically doesn't uh, have a mustache, for example. And and so not only were did people, uh, for example, in the U.S. government, I would be with American officials, and I they would say things like, "Well, you know, uh, I think." this is a sign of radicalization. But even within mm. Pakistan, the people who chose not to uh, wear their piety, if you will, began fearing those who did. And mm. those who do wear their piety in their clothing um, also began to other those who didn't. And so I, I thought it was really appropriate whether uh, for us to begin empirically testing some of those assumptions. Mm. And so, yeah, in this paper, comes to the conclusion it has really nothing to do with your piety it really has to do with the content of your belief not the depth of your belief so so you say in the paper christine that um you want you 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 looked at sort of sort of separately considered the relationship between support for militant organizations and religious practice number one support for political islam number two and jihadism number three um and and those three those three factors um so so clothing is one thing but there there are other things that you considered right yeah so i will say so this was probably since this was the first paper where we were exploring yeah. it um this is i would certainly say this is our least sophisticated attempt at, at tweezing yeah. this out because we were also uh my colleagues were really interested in using indirect information uh, gathering called the information queue to assess people's beliefs. So um, the data set was about 9,000 people, but a lot of that sample size was driven by the fact that when you do an information queue experiment, you have to divide the populations into a treated and an untreated group. And you are also measuring support uh, for militancy indirectly. So for example, um, we would ask about madrasa policy and the mm. untreated group would simply be asked, you know, do they favor the current uh, reforms under discussion? And the treated yeah. group would get an information and, uh, you know, an, an endorsement from one of the militant leaders or organizations. 
And so the, that way the person thinks that they're answering a policy question. And what we're really measuring on average is the, uh, the way in which the endorsement changes the, the average level of support for the group between the treated and the untreated group. So that does mean that you, you're not getting, um, it's, it's difficult to look at one any one individual without comparing the means, if that makes sense. So right. what we did in subsequent papers, we really, we really used this, the, this study to burrow deeper within this. But the intuition behind the breaking out of those issues are actually the debates that I've been studying for a long time amongst the different militant groups operating in Pakistan. So for example, one of the uh, one of the first and foremost questions about this is whether or not you think jihad can be waged in an Islamically appropriate way by a non-state actor. Mm-hmm. Now this is a huge debate, right? Uh, across different Muslim scholars um, and particularly amongst the Islamic, uh, you know, the ulama communities, right? And this, you know, you'll have these very complicated debates about um, when the prophet was in Mecca, he used peace agreements. Uh, He only used violence when he went to Medina. And so you'll hear people talk about the Meccan in the Medinan period. But what's central to those debates is whether or not uh, jihad can be waged by a non-state actor or whether it can only be waged by an Islamic state. Then, of course, there's a subsidiary debate about what an Islamic state is. The second issue concerns political Islam itself. Um, And political Islam Simply, I would say, you know, as an American, it's really not that different from the Republican efforts to stuff our courts with. Well, no, I mean, I don't mean that humorously. I mean, right. I mean, basically what political Islam says is that we want our government to espouse Islamic ideals and adhere to prescriptions and proscriptions that are in the Quran. So, you know, Americans will reduce this to Sharia simplistically. Um, And I do point out that's why so many people are voting uh, for President Trump, Mitch McConnell, because they are going to be continuing their effort of putting in justices who believe that there's a place for religion in our government, that uh, women's bodies should be controlled um, by a government that um, adheres, respects to, and follows what they believe to be their interpretation of Christianity. Although the Bible, of course, never speaks to the issue of abortion, except obliquely in the Old Testament when it actually uh, actually condones abortion. It's a very limited reference. And you have the same situation with Sharia. Um, hmm. And so Pakistan is very different from Iran. Um, And of course, Iran is very different from Shia Islam elsewhere in the sense that in Iran, Shia Islam is very hierarchical, right? There's a clear, uh, there's a clergy, which is hierarchical. In Pakistan, there's, there are five major traditions that interpret Sharia differently, and they are not hierarchical. So this is perhaps one of the things that keeps Pakistan 
from becoming uh, an Islamic state. And part of that, uh, and then of course the military, which really wants to be in control of the politics of Islam and the contents of political Islam, they're very effective at putting these different militant groups in contestation with each other based upon their competing ideologies. So, mm-hmm. so, so that diversity actually, uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, Christy, so that the diversity in interpretations actually provides them an avenue out of uh, becoming a, a pure Islam. Absolutely. State. And it gives a lot of power actually to the military, um, mm-hmm. which is all by design. I mean, this goes back to Pakistan's first um first army chief and first military dictator, Ayub Khan. Uh, The military wants to be in charge of the content of political Islam. And so having this non-hierarchical ulama arrangement is really quite suitable. But, you know, you have a very similar situation in Afghanistan. And I, you know, when you're around, when you're in this business long enough, you kind of develop a, a colorful sense of humor or an off-color sense of humor. Yes. So w- one of the right. debates that the Taliban have been having is whose Sharia is going to prevail because the school mm. of Islamic thought to which the Taliban adhere is actually a minority. Mm. And the and so they're Dale Bundy, the majority of, of Afghans, we believe, because there hasn't been a census, it, I mean, oh my gosh, since before the 70s, um, most Afghans are suspected to adhere to a Sufi order, um, Naqshbandi. And so while they're both Hanafi, they really are quite different in, in how they right. view the prophet, how they view, how they view appropriate poetic practices. Um, they both agree <laughs> that, you know, women are uh, second-class citizens. So at least on the issues of oppressing women, they are in agreement, but on everything else, they disagree. Right, right, and so, so, so I understand this is an mm-hmm. older paper, and we'll come to that, some of the newer ones. But a couple of conclusions that came out of it both are interesting. So you say that we find that neither religious practice nor support for political Islam is related to support for militant groups. That is sort of conclusion number one. Um, another one I want to uh, I want you to quickly interpret this for me. So Pakistanis who believe jihad is both an external militarized tr- struggle that it can be waged by individuals are more supportive of violent groups than those who believe it as an internal struggle of righteousness. And so so if I understand this correctly, uh, you're saying that uh, whoever is believing this, you know, could be, and I think you mentioned this, could be waged by individuals, not by the state, are more supportive of the violent violent Okay. So to go back to the first, the first two conclusions, right? That people who, um, uh, for example, believe in in political Islam. um, I mean, you might be a very fundamentalist Christian in this country, right? You might completely support um, a Supreme Court that denies women access to uh, body autonomy and the right to make choices about their bodies. But it does not mean that you would support those organizations, for example, who have shot at physicians that they believe to perform surgical abortion procedures, right? Hmm. That is to say, you can feel about something very, very strongly, but 
you do not condone that violence and you certainly wouldn't entertain that violence for yourself. Right. So this is this is exactly how, you know, Pakistanis are. The in, Americans, I think, in particular, um, should be able to understand. I'm, since I'm an American, I can only make that comparison. I can't make it um, to, to other uh, countries. But I think the intuition is pretty straightforward. And so that what we what so what we find is also very straightforward and it derives explicitly from these different debates about the Quran. So we talked about the Meccan in the Medinan period, uh, which which is precisely the justification for the argument that only Islamic states, not individuals, can wage war. But there's also a, um, another set of debates that are derived from different uh, surahs in the Quran. But there is this discussion about whether because you know jihad just means struggle right it doesn't mean fight it means a, it right. means a struggle and uh ijtihad which is this process of interpretation uh i often explain it we don't uh for for talmud scholars right it's it's basically um trying to apply what is in the scripture to contemporary life right so it is that struggle to make sense so um, there, there is a debate about whether or not the, the most important jihad is the jihad that you wage with yourself to become a better person or to make your society better. And then there are those who say, no, jihad is a militarized struggle. It comes directly from um, the same period in the prophet's life when he commanded Muslims to pray five times a day, to uh, pay zakat, and to undertake hajj. And Muslims have readily embraced those obligations that were issued during the Medinan period, the so-called Islamic State period. And for them to repudiate the obligations of jihad is injurious to their commitments to Islam. So there are these two, you know, they're, they're related, obviously, inherently, although they come from different pieces of the Quran. Um, and another version of the greater lesser jihad is whether jihad is of the tongue, pen, or the sword. So in mm -hmm. other surveys that I've done, for example, in Bangladesh, where that debate where that phraseology is more salient, we use that version of the question. But they're coming from the same okay. place. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to uh, go into another theme here. So you had an uh, older paper. Uh, this is talking about poverty and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and militant politics and what the relationship might be. So the older paper in 2012, you say policy debates on strategies to end extremist violence frequently cite poverty <laughs> as a root cause yeah. of support uh, for the perpetrating groups. Uh, but you found in 2012, there is little evidence to support this contention uh, using again, data from Pakistan. And you have a recent paper in 2016 entitled Relative Poverty, Perceived Violence and Support for Militant Politics. Again, evidence from Pakistan, but you're finding something slightly different, right? Do I understand so that correctly? What we, so what, what, they, what both of these things have in common, is yeah. it is not the poorest of people that support these groups, right? And yeah. now, I mean, since this is a science podcast, right? There, there is, there's, so 
there is a statistical process happening here. Um, it might surprise most of your readership because of the prominence of the so-called global war on terrorism that, you know, up until as late as 2010, many, which is, uh, and certainly 2011 with Osama bin Laden being uh, found in Pakistan, many Pakistanis did not even believe that Al-Qaeda was even real. Uh, and, you know, I've, I'd been going to Pakistan long before 9-11. I first went to Pakistan in 1991. Um, it just now, this is quite distinct from the indigenous Pakistani groups. So the people who are going to know, so first thing, political Islam, at least in Pakistan, is an urban phenomenon, right? And mm -hmm. the groups in Pakistan, like, for example, lashkar e taiba Al-Qaeda, so many researchers are fascinated with online presence. But the fact is, in Pakistan, there's so little penetration of the internet, even still, that these groups rely upon the good old-fashioned printed word. So by the time you start at, you know, asking who's going to be um, knowledgeable of these groups, who's going to know what their position is, you're really looking at someone who is generally urban, who is going to have, um, and different, I, the group I primarily study, Lushgar Taiba, writes very sophisticated materials. This is not stuff for your country bumpkin. Now, there are terrorist publications that cater, but you still have to be literate, right? Correct. You need access to, sounds like you need access you do, to information. Right. And so, yeah. I, so that there is this self-selecting process of people who tend to be mm. um, better educated and they're less likely to be poor because they have to be able to buy this stuff. Right. And so that's, I think now there's another way of approaching this that I've also looked at. So I, I think of the militant market as having um, two dimensions, like any other labor market, there's the demand for jihadi labor, right? And then there's the supply of jihadi paper. And the reason why we do studies like this, where we're using surveys, is that there's this presumption that um, presumably, if you're going to be willing to send your kid to jihad, or even undertake jihad yourself, that there has to be some level of support for it, right? And we can debate that. Um, there actually have, we, we have done studies of this in the U.S. Army, incidentally. And it, and it turns out um, the people who, there's this thing, they're uh, monitoring the youth, the youth aptitude survey. There have been a, a couple surveys that people have used to, to anticipate uh, future Army recruitment uh, goals. And it turns out the majority of people that join the army are the people who said, I'm never going to join the army, <laughs> right? Now, part of that statistical, right. because most people say, I'm never going to join the army. And then lo and behold, they join the army. So um, different people have different philosophies. I do not personally believe, and it has not been shown, that just because you support these groups, that this means that you will support yourself going. Right. I mean, I, I've spent too much time at Rand and, I'm, and have learned too much about army recruitment and how unreliable those surveys are to believe they work like this. But they do speak to public support. Right. If people don't support them, they don't give money. They uh, would not consider sending their kid to jihad. So these surveys in some way or another speak to potentially um, the supply of terrorist labor. 
but when we look at the puzzle from the other way and we look at the demand piece, we're still coming to an interesting conclusion about the poorest people. They are not the people who are showing up in terrorist ranks. And uh, so a colleague of mine, Ethan Bueno de Mosquita, he he's really more of a well, he was more of a theoretical economist, although he's done much more empirical work subsequent to writing this piece. He wrote this really interesting piece called The Quality of Terror. And he was trying to understand this puzzle, which is to say generally poorer countries are more likely to produce terrorists, but the terrorists themselves are not likely to be poor. Right. And so he he theorized that um, when you have a, a fairly lousy economy, higher quality people are unemployed and thus higher quality people's right. opportunity costs decline in a retrenching economy. And since terrorist organizations mm. tend to be small numbers, right, there's usually right. as long right. as there are more people who want to be a terrorist then there are needs for terrorists, they can choose on quality, right? So um, in my own work on Pakistan, I have found empirical support for that claim. The, now, again, the reason for this is really quite simple. It really hinges upon, I mean, and so you can sort of say, I mean, I've, I've spent too much of my life working with labor economists, so I tend to, I tend to approach <laughs> these puzzles like a labor economist. But um, so if, this first dawned on me, I might add, around 2002, because everyone was like howling and screaming about madrasas. And I went, I was in Kashmir, actually, with the Indian army, which obviously makes me, yeah. you know, a, a Muslim hater. Just just ask. <laughs> actually, everyone hates right. me. The, the Hindu nationalists hate me. The ISI lovers hate me and, and our own religious nationalists hate me. I get no love. But um, <laughs> but I was in, I was there with them. I was with the 15th Corps. And uh, they showed me these training notebooks that the militants, you know, be, you know, just like they're in school. You know, when my brothers, my brothers were in the army until recently, when they went through their various training, they, they took notes on, on what they had to do and what they had to learn. And I'm looking at these notebooks and they're doing math. Of course, they're doing math. Because if you're going to build an IED from things that are available in the uh, in the market, you have to know how to do. You need to know how to do ratios, right? Um, and they had to identify the English words for the compounds. And um, I'm looking at this. I'm like, man, th 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 these kids are not coming from these madrasas because madrasas don't teach this, right? And that right. ended up driving the work I did so, on madrasas. But yeah, but go on. Great. Yeah. No, no. I, so so um, would you say then, um, you know, there's sort of an inverted U type relationship. So if you think about income um, on the x-axis, uh, on, the, on the supply side, the, you have to be reasonably well off. You have some spare time to, yes. to, to spend, so to speak. Uh, to, to and you have to be literate, which, so, yeah. which is really and a major cutoff in Pakistan, right? The majority of Pakistani males will not get to the 10th grade, right? That is a major accomplishment. And that is the minimum level of literacy that you would need to understand most of the materials that I have studied, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that is a very, very interesting. So it has a lot of policy implications. I want to uh, touch on another thing, another theme that you have uh, in a couple of papers, one older one and one more recent one. And that's about the connection or the correlation, if you will, between democratic <laughs> values and, yeah, and military yep. politics. It's not what and people think. There are some counter, yeah, counterintuitive, um, you know. Uh, but no, it's uh, not counterintuitive for me. Right? It, was counterintuitive, it was counterintuitive okay. for my colleagues. But remember, I'm the regional person. Yeah. Right? So I've, been, I've spent the majority, I spent, what, 30 years in South Asia. So for me, the, there was no counterintuitiveness. Right. And if you think it through, it's not counterintuitive. So the yeah. so in South Asia, um, Azadi, right? It, it means independence. Mm. It was associated with the independence movement, right? That, that re- resulted in an, yeah. an independent India and, and Pakistan, although that was not entirely desired by, by, uh, by all in the subcontinent. <laughs> So, and then even prior to, um, you had the, um, the mutiny of 1857 and whether you're Indian or Pakistani today, you, you generally still recognize that as the first war for Azadi, right? So Azadi means freedom. Um, if you think about the American revolution, what were we, we, we weren't fighting for the right to, um, tax corporations or not tax corporations, (laughs) We were fighting for mm-hmm. Azadi. Yes. And so my intuition was, and so my role in these these papers is to to basically kind of think about the division of labor. You know, they are the they're the science gurus. They know how to do the experimental surveys. My job is to <laughs> look at the literature, combine it with what is known or not known about South Asia to produce testable hypotheses, right? And you don't you so it's very rare that you have teams like this. That's the first thing. Like we are very very unique in our in yeah. in our team. So and we're, we were able to explore things that other people hadn't conceived of, because most teams are not as interdisciplinary as we are um, and were. So if you so let's take for example the groups that we we looked at. I had hypothesized that the groups. The groups that support Azadi or profess to support Azadi will be supported by those groups that fare well in support for democracy measures, right? Those groups that do not espouse an Azadi Azadi, uh, objective um, will not uh, enjoy that support amongst democracy supporters. So I can give you like a couple of examples. Hmm. Uh, the Taliban, yeah. when we did this survey, um, they were espousing Azadi from U.S. occupation, and that's how they're depicted in Pakistan. Hmm. You know, remember, there's a there's a subjective truth about what the groups actually do and what the groups say they do, and because of the disinformation <laughs> right. management campaigns that are skillfully waged by Pakistan's intelligence agency, the quality of information that people have about what the groups actually do is quite low. So the most important thing is that they think they do this. So I had had hypothesized that groups like the Taliban, um, the jihadi groups like Lashkar Taiba, 
they argue that they are helping Kashmiris, and for that matter, more generally, Indian Muslims, obtain Azadi from the Indian state. But there are other groups, like the sectarian groups, who primarily the, the public good, if you will, that they provide is not arguing against occupation and for Azadi, but simply ridding the community of what they see to be apostates, for example. Those groups should not register support among democracy supporters because they are not tying mm. their, their, there's nothing in their organization and the arguments that they espouse that appeal to fundamental democratic rights. Right. And that's actually in our, and so that right. intuition right. is borne out empirically. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, there are some close parallels. Yes, of to course. That, oh my heavens! So many right? frighteningly close parallels. Frighteningly, we will talk a little bit about that uh, because you spend a lot of time in 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 India and Pakistan as well as in the U.S. Uh, there are some very interesting parallels between these three countries oh, yes. in the contemporary sense. And uh, I don't know if you if you have done much work uh, in this area, Christine. I, I grew up in, uh, oh, in the Kerala is a hot state of spot. Kerala. Uh, so I spent half so my life there. We're in Kerala, because that's also US. important. And, Are you from northern yeah. Kerala or for the southern part of yeah. Kerala? I am oh, okay. right in the, okay. in the middle. So then you know what I'm talking about then, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So. But when I was growing up, though, and we, when we come back, we'll talk about this. When I was growing up, you know, as you know, it's a it's a very multicultural society, um, Christians, uh, Muslims and Hindus. Uh, there was a significant Jewish population in that area that seemed to have mostly left uh, that area. But when, when I was growing up, uh, we used to go to all the festivals. You know, we go to go to mosques and temples and churches. And we didn't really think about religion as uh, a very customized <laughs> luxury good. Um, and so, so I think there are some parallels here in terms of the, the yes. state had 100% literacy. It had some, you know, sort of um, perhaps more developed uh, ideas. Uh, and so, so I think you mentioned this education seems like a very important uh, aspect, uh, you know, to get out of this uh, this nightmare that we are in. But we'll take a quick um, break, and when we come back, this is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, so Christine, you have some uh, recent papers um, and one of them is on Bangladesh. And this one is entitled, Who Supports Suicide Terrorism in Bangladesh? What the Data Say? Uh, in which you say Bangladesh is one of the world's largest Muslim countries is generally viewed as a success story with a strong tradition of secular democracy. Unfortunately, you say this assertion rests on a weak empirical foundation. Um, so you want to talk a bit about, um, again, the data and, and what uh, what you concluded? Yeah, so 
So you're, you'll find people who like to have certain fantasies about Bangladesh. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they, so for example, the, the, the most common one is that it is an example of, of a Muslim democracy, uh, a peace, yeah, secular democracy, all of this stuff. When you actually look at the history of Bangladesh, it, that just isn't true, mm. right? Mm. It was a very brief period in Bangladesh's history right after uh, it was liberated from Pakistan mm. in the 71 war where Bangladesh was truly a secular democracy. And mm. it lasted all of like four years. And even in that period, uh, Mujibur Rahman, who was viewed by... I will call them left of center. Bangladeshis is the father of the nation. He was a horrific autocrat, rivaling only, I would say, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was his contemporary, right? Right. And you'll see almost from the beginning um, a rehabilitation of the various Islamist groups that many Bangladeshis had initially reviled because of their role in the anti-Bengali atrocities. So Jamaat yeah. Islami, for example. But they begin to be rehabilit rehabilitated very briefly after independence. Hmm. And uh, what you kind of had like this blowback effect, like once, um, once Bangladesh was established, the Bengaliness of the country was not in question. Right. But you had a lot of Bengali non-Muslims. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why East Pakistan uh, was treated so terribly was because of the Bengali Hindu as well as Christian and, and Buddhist citizens who were still then Pakistani. So Bangladesh basically um, feels comfortable that it, it got its Bangladesh state, its, Bangla, its, uh, its Bengali state, and, and it becomes much more interested in Islam issues. And part of this is facilitated by the the rise of the petrodollar amongst Gulf state monarchies. Bangladesh, like many other um, Muslim, you know, obviously not only Muslim states sent their their employees to the Gulf for remittances, but this was a very natural place for South Asian Muslims to go. And that, by the way, will does tie very much into the Kerala ISIS story. Right. <laughs> so Bangladesh, you know, this idea of it being a secular democracy is really just, there, it, uh, it's going to be nice to call it a fiction. But whereas the Pakistani state has very much embraced jihadism as a tool of foreign policy under its nuclear umbrella, the current leadership in Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, she, her strategic value to the international community is that she is supposed to be um, a staunch foe of Islamism and Islamic Islamist militancy, right? <laughs> in reality, she is doing what her predecessors have done, which is she's setting up her own statist Islamist organization that she can be in control of while trying to drive underground um, the 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 groups it's the groups that came before. So this is right out of the Pakistani page. So interestingly enough, because of this, doing this survey in Bangladesh was much more dangerous than the surveys we did in Pakistan. It, it comes the, the only other survey I've ever done that was that was as dangerous as the Bangladeshi one was a survey I did in Iran in 2007. Yeah. So my um, the Sheikh Hasina regime uh, picked up several of our enumerator teams um, 
we had to, uh, we were, we only collected half of our sample when the harassment became too intense. She then had her intelligence agency pick up one of my colleagues. Um, wow. I then spent, um, me and Ali Riaz about two months trying to get him out. And then once we got him out of detention, get him out of the country, it became a part-time job for almost nine months to get him resettled in a country um, where he could be safe. And then they did a similar thing uh, to a junior colleague on the project. So, um, and the reason for that was, is that from Sheikh Hasina's point of view, any level of support for these militant groups and their tactics would damage her credentials, right? As a so-called secular strong woman. So she was she was afraid what you will find. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And so I I, I haven't really looked into this, Christine. So what's the composition of the Bangladesh population? I know it's about 160 million, mm -hmm. and it's it's 90 percent Muslim or something along those lines. Yeah, probably a little bit higher than that. Higher. Um, yeah. But most so I mean. Most of the Hindus have been driven out, right? I mean, right. it's you if, if you look at going back from to so uh, you know, the, the partition of the Bengal going back to the early 20th century, every single one of these major events, like um, the partition of Bengal, then of course, partition of the subcontinent, then 1971, and then uh, every time uh, a Hindu fanatic in India did something like, you know, massacre Muslims, uh, uh, the Ayodhya massacre, you know, what happened in <laughs> yeah. Ayodhya and the subsequent massacres, the Muslims in, Indi in in Pakistan and Bangladesh would simply retaliate against the innocent, hapless Hindus there as if somehow it was their fault, right? <laughs> so you, you had like this, um, and then um, one of the things I, whenever I go to Dhaka, I always go to the Hindu temple, because that's the best way of seeing whether or not people feel it's safe to be there. And the, the last time I was there, uh, it was not well attended at all. Um, and people that I did speak to, I said, hey, where, where, are every, where is everyone? And they're like, well, we're just afraid to be here. Because some of the, the groups uh, in Bangladesh, they've targeted secularists and they've targeted non-Muslims. So right. yeah, so there are there are so there's a yeah. sort of a self-selection bias. So if you if you let the experiment run long enough, you'll you'll get pure countries and be a close. Well, to yeah, and of course Pakistan has been, has waged an unrelenting war on its minorities. But you know the problem that you have um, in and Bangladesh is is somewhat similar to Pakistan when you have these competing traditions of Sunni Islam, not to mention. Shia, um, and then there's always the Emadi problem, you then have who is the right Muslim. So, for example, in Pakistan, but it happened in Bangladesh first, which I always pointed out to people, even the Taliban did not do what I saw in Bangladesh. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, Bangladeshi militant groups were attacking Sufis, right? Mm -hmm. The Taliban did not do that in Afghanistan. And so, uh, and the reason why they were going after Sufis, just as they are in Pakistan, is that uh, the Brailvis, which, you know, is like the name that's sort of the umbrella term for people who follow different Sufi traditions, they engage in practices that, that Orthodox Muslims believe to be heterodox, heterodoxical and to be drawing from Hindu practice. So, for example, um, 
going to shrines and seeking out the advice and amulets and blessings and um, and so forth from religious peers. They view this to be an accretion from Hinduism and they want to extirpate it, right? So Bangladesh, you saw these things happening in Bangladesh uh, more than 12 years or so before it first began happening in Pakistan with any regularity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so, so that that that's so that's so. Yeah, let's uh, set aside Bangladesh. We'll return mm-hmm. to, to return to that. You have a couple of other papers uh, again looking at you know. So this is suicide bombing in West Africa. Um, again, you know, you, you're looking at there is a hypothesis that you say if if a support for Islamist violence among Muslims uh, can be found, then the probability of a terrorist attack uh, could be higher. Uh, in that area. That's a hypothesis, right? So um, I, I guess in this paper, you, you didn't really find that to be the case. Well, right? no, so, what we, so that paper yeah. and the Indonesia paper are what we call replication yeah. studies. So okay. Um, okay. my yeah. colleagues, Liz Nugent and Rebecca Littman, um, we did this paper in political science research methods where we had put forward a more, what we believe to be a more accurate way of instrumentalizing support for terrorism. And and it comes out of these different uh, empirically verified measures of what people think Islamism is, right? And it turns out, um, and again, it's in in debates are not so dissimilar from what's happening amongst Christians here. Um, It's scriptural literalism. Right. It's the, the scriptural literists who right. are more likely to support this kind of violent terrorism. Even the first Bangladesh paper with Ali Hamza and Rebecca Heller, that too was a replication study. Um, the first paper on Bangladesh, uh, we're using Pew data, just as we used in Indonesia and just as we used in the West African countries. And the yeah. other issue that made the West African cases interesting is that usually these surveys are done in Muslim majority countries, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're uh, drawing from another paper I did with my colleague, Parina Patel. We actually found that it the it's not just being Muslim, it's the kind of regime in which you live that affects your attitudes towards violence. And so we were trying to, what what we had found in that paper is that the percentage, um, as the percentage of the population that's Muslim varies, so do attitudes towards violence. But not always in ways that are predictable because so few of the surveys include, for example, India, the questions that we need about violence as well as detailed questions about beliefs about Islam are never, they're never fielded in India, even though India is one of the most important uh, Muslim minority countries, right? Yeah, and it has more Muslims than Bangladesh. Well, okay, so it kind of depends on the census, right? Um, So whose censuses are worse? (laughs) (laughs) Right, so, so what we do know is that the populations of Pakistan, the Muslim populations of India and Indonesia, they are all pretty competitive, depending upon right. whose census you think to be better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but um, so the, the importance of including, so what we did was we had this, this, this scriptural literalness, right? That was the key finding that Rebecca and Liz and I found. And we wanted to see how far away from Pakistan can we go and still find that scriptural literalism, not other things, uh, drive this result. And so it was very robust in Indonesia. It was very robust in Bangladesh. Um, and, you know, it's it's generally robust in West Africa, which is surprising given how different those polities are. Because the Muslims in West Africa, they are not Hanafi like everyone is in South Asia. They, are, they tend to be right. um, Hanbali, right? And, and they're not Muslim-majority countries. So we, these would, I would, those would fall into what I would just call um, robustness or replication studies. How far can we, how far can we take this principle finding and and still have it hold up? And so the finding is, if I understand this correctly, Christine, the finding is that scriptural literalism yeah. uh, is highly correlated with proclivity yes, to violence. Exactly. And you find that. Uh, in the data, in replication studies across a variety of uh, countries, Indonesia, Bangladesh, uh, four West African countries. And more generally, um, if you look at India, we look at the U.S., uh, we see something very similar in some ways, right? So, um, so a couple yeah. of things about India and also the United yeah. States. We don't really have these kinds of data. Right. We don't have comparable data. And the other thing about India that I always caution people is that there is more variation between two Indian states than there are, say, for example, between India and Bangladesh, depending upon your measure. Right. Because India is so right. ginormously complicated and um, Muslims are not. So you grew up in Kerala, right? A Muslim right. in Kerala has more affinity, despite even after all the changes that you've observed, than with another Kerala Hindu, than he or she will have with a Muslim from Bihar or Uttar Pradesh, much less Kashmir. Right. 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 There, there is no common language. Right. And that's why so many Southern mm. Indian Muslims wouldn't even consider moving to Pakistan in 1947. They didn't speak Urdu. Um, the, their eating habits were much more similar to their Hindu neighbors. Their clothing right. habits completely different. No one wears in forty-seven. No one wore a shawar kameez. <laughs> no, yeah, never seen. Never, that right? Yeah, that's right? It's yeah. only recently, yeah. Yeah. and that's because of the Gulf migration. So, um, I when I so I, 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 India for me, we have to be very careful, and we have to think about specific states. And um, there are some states that have had um, that where Muslim parties were rehabilitated. Um, uh, for example, Kerala, um, after partition, Muslim parties were repudiated because of their association with communal violence. But in, in, in Kerala, so for example, the Ministry of Education has gone back and forth between um, Marxists and the Muslim League. <laughs> And right. <laughs> both have invested very heavily in education, right? The yeah. Muslim League in Kerala is a very professional political organization. And, and if you were to compare that yes, to yeah. its counterpart, for example, in Hyderabad, the Oasis, it's a very different kind of organization, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> for so many <laughs> reasons. Right. And I and I've you know I've I've spent a lot. I've I've I spent a lot of time studying both of these states and their and their political parties. Um, and I had, had at one point had hoped to return to the study on, uh, but it's just become too difficult to do the study in India in the current political environment in India. Uh, so it's a it's a foundation there, uh, Christine. Is it is it purely education that so, makes a difference? Right, so the chair, so here's the, here's what I would say is the. The, here's the hypothesis that explains the Kerala yeah. phenomenon. Um, it I don't. It has not been. I don't. I don't think this has been. You know, robustly empirically tested. But here, here's my hypothesis that I had hoped to go back um, and and figure out. So if you so we know from India's census, um, and and, yeah. and again it's really important that you look state by state because there's so much variation. But in general, when we look at human development indicators, Muslims are they're either below OBCs um, in scheduled tribes, you know, the other backward uh, uh, castes and scheduled tribes, or they are just somewhat above. But they're hovering. And this will depend on whether it's an urban area or a rural area. But in general, now, so you take a state like Kerala, Everyone is going to be better educated in Kerala than, say, Uttar Pradesh or Bihar, because it's Kerala for all the reasons that we've talked about. Both Marxists um, believe. And, and so actually, Amartya Sen did a really fascinating study back in the 90s. He, he was asking what yeah. states were best able to take advantage of the market reforms that the um, the that were made under Manmohan Singh when he was the finance minister. And what he actually found was Bengal and Kerala were better situated than most because the general Indian educational model is that they're not going to invest in basic education. They're going to basically cream the cream and then the creamed cream goes to the IITs, right? <laughs> and there are so many people. Right. I mean, you, you can actually do that with a huge population like India because the population is so large, right? But, but what positioned Kerala to truly take advantage of the market reforms was that it had invested in basic health and basic education. So you had a more endowed labor pool. They had higher levels of human capital and thus they were able to have, uh, they were able to more effectively reap the rewards. That, so if, if this hypothesis oh, no, but, oh, this is isn't the hypothesis about um, Kerala. So, yeah. Okay. So I guess okay. it's Kerala. <laughs> you have to sort of bear with me. Yeah. So nonetheless, yeah. despite the fact that Muslims in Kerala um, are better educated than they are in their neighbors, there is still a hierarchy, right? They are still, when you could look at their employment rate, when you look at their income, they still lag behind their higher caste Hindu counterparts. Okay, so what happens when you have a well-educated pool of Muslim labor that is underemployed and speak English, which is the other, uh, what makes Kerala so different? They go to the Gulf, right? And that's what right. they did. They had been going to the Gulf for a very long time. And they began, um, as they began making money in the Gulf, and this is, of course, referring to specific villages in the northern part of Kerala. 
Um, they began investing yeah. in Islamic institutions, mosques, madrasas, all of this stuff. Um, you'll be in the middle of the jungle and women are wearing a full hijab with niqab. <laughs> And you'll go. Wow, wow. Yeah, I haven't oh, been to Northern oh, Kerala you, for 30 years. So if I you go know. back, you, you'll be floored. Yeah. You'll, and, and, and again, this is not poor people because, you know, one of the things I always do, I always go into the hijab shops and I always <laughs> see what's the cheapest hijab <laughs> I can get. And that's a really good right. indicator of who's wearing hijab and who's not. And so if you were to go to Kerala now, you would find that people are less likely to inter-celebrate these holidays that you spoke about. Um, the men still, you know, you know uh, I'm sure you know this, but in Kerala, Muslim men and Hindu men, they wear their, um, their lungis tied on, on other sides, right? So right. that's still generally the case. Usually the only thing that might distinguish a, a Hindu from a Muslim in Kerala will be the presence or absence of a skull cap and, and, the, and a beard, of course, especially if they've done hajj. But the big differences are going to be in the women. The women are going to be veiled from head to toe. And so what? So then what happens is ISIS, people ask, well, why are these really educated Muslims joining ISIS? Well, it kind of goes back to the basic human capital. Think about this. Your average Indian has to have a lot of savoir-faire to get a passport. And the first thing they need to do to go and join ISIS is to get a passport, which most Indians cannot do. Um, you have to grease palms because there's, you also have to have a police check. You have to get the primary documents. And, and most people don't, just like America, even though it's very simple, most Americans do not have passports. Most Indians don't have passports. And so what is really happening is that the, uh, there's no nice way to put this, the lethargy <laughs> of India's bureaucracy puts this enormous selection pressure so that only the most savvy, competent, and endowed can get their passports to become an ISIS terrorist. That person in Bihar <laughs> might want to join ISIS. But that poor dude, he right. can't figure out who to bribe to get his passport. So, so that is the that is the inverted <laughs> U that you we, we talked about before, right? So, at either end of the sort of the wealth income spectrum, uh, you don't have uh, you don't have subscription uh, to ISIS or yeah. gen more generally violence. So, it is those who are sort of in the middle. Who have the luxury? These are some of the wealthiest. Um, some of these ISIS dudes were access, were yeah. Yahoo employees in the United States. Like these, I mean, these are right, not middle right. class by Indian standards. These are the elite of the elites. They made a choice. Yeah. And so, so this has again, you know, if you think about some sort of a policy intervention, so. So if I understand this correctly, Christine, you know, just correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is that uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, we think about democracy, we think about education, uh, are, are things, uh, you know, could be cure uh, to, the, to these problems that we discussed. Uh, but in absence, in, in absence of, you know, some sort of um, egalitarianism, I, I don't know what, what the right term would be, but if people are sort of left behind in the bureaucratic yes. pyramids, uh, in different echelons of the bureaucratic pyramids, they might be educated, 
they might have some affinity for democracy, but at the end of the day, the outcomes are not going to be what yeah, you Yeah, I mean, I, again, it just, it depends upon the group, right? I mean, I, I think what, yeah. now I'm, I, I gotta be blunt, ISIS befuddles me, right? I, I don't know how it yeah. is that any Muslim couldn't look at ISIS and say, oh yeah, I totally want to be a part of that. I mean, it is, but it is not so dissimilar from something that I see in the United States. Although, um, so in the United States, there are women that are very happy um, being the Amy COVID Barrett's of the world um, or the Betsy DeVos. And the reason is they view themselves as, as sort of second in the hierarchy in the, the white male supremacist regime in which they operate, right? They're, they're literally the handmaids of patriarchy. And they are endowed with the job of policing other women. And they derive their status from that, right? Um, many, many men of color voted for Trump, right? And, and they still, and still will. And the reason for that is, is that whereas white yeah. women want more access to white privilege and whiteness, they want access to more patriarchy, right? And so yeah. if you think about the people who are living in the United Kingdom and hauling their kids off to Syria via Turkey or trying to haul their kids off, you know, you have to ask, what in the world is the re this regime that you think is so glorious? This is a murderous, terrible regime. But taking that parallel of white women who want to be the handmaidens of white male supremacy or black men who are happy uh, benefit or who are happy to support white male supremacy because it is male supremacy, right? And they are number two because they they are males. In the same way, the middle class Bangladeshis in London, um, where are they in the in the status? Right. There is no social mobility in the United Kingdom, even, you know, nouveau riche. They will still be identified as nouveau riche, which is very different from Americans. Like I, I'm I'm from straight up trailer park. I am I I am trailer. Park. And I don't I'm not even embarrassed. I'm, I'm the American dream. Right. My mother, you know, I don't have a dad. My mom cleaned toilets, among other things, bartended to send me to college. And I'm a professor. Right. That's the American dream. In, in fact, if I if I were not so sensitive to my class origins and and and, and embrace it, mo people would never assume that I'm a hillbilly. It would never, it, 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 and no one would really even care, right? That's not true in the UK. So if you sort of if you if you take a situation that you understand intuitively, as I as I do the black male white supremacist supporters and the white females it's very similar for the, for this bangladeshi in the united kingdom there they will no matter how much money they earn because of the work they've put in educating their children to become doctors at the end of the day when uh, and i've seen this happen i have lots of south asian friends in the united kingdom i have been with them when we're just walking down the road and someone calls them a racial epithet Right. So you can see, you know, the appeal of an otherwise unappealing regime because this is a regime that empowers you and it has enough people that you get to look down on and oppress that you, in fact, feel empowered. Right. 
Mm. Yeah, so, so, I, I, so I want to dig a little deeper. So you have a recent paper here 20, in 2020 just came out, Rational Islamists, Islamism and regime <laughs> preferences in Bangladesh. But yes, we can talk more, yes, yes, more yes. broadly about this. So, 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 so you talk about a framework here, uh, civilizationalist, modern, modernizationist mm-hmm. and rational choice. So what are, what are those three categories right, so, what do they mean? Um, so modernizationists, well, let's, so let's, let's just focus on what the puzzle is in Bangladesh, first and foremost. So, yeah. um, th- and this is a survey that we actually fielded. So it turns out, <laughs> and again, it is counterintuitive what you think. <laughs> The people who <laughs> most support democracy in Bangladesh, guess what? They're not the secularists. They are the Islamists. They are people who identify as Islamists. Now, now, again, as the area studies person, I'm not surprised by this because I have seen it before. I've seen this in Pakistan. If you So if you are a secularist, and oh, by the way, this also explains there are comparable papers in the United States that explain um, support for autocracy among white people. <laughs> Hang on. The, the parallel is striking. So in Bangladesh, <laughs> so if, yeah. like, whoa, gee, like, I don't expect Islamists to support democracy. Well, it's really quite simple. Islamists in Bangladesh are right now hunted, haunted, terrified and disenfranchised by the Sheikh Hasina regime, right? Every manner of depriving them of a right to vote is in practice. Secularists fear a truly free and fair election, including letting Islamist candidates contest elections because they fear that they in fact will come back to power. So secularists Mm. prefer more autocracy and the Islamists fear that if (laughs) there were more democracy, they would be better represented. That's the Bangladesh puzzle. And that's what we find empirically, right? In the United States, we find the same thing. White people are perfectly happy supporting the autocratic tendencies of the current Republican party, including voter suppression (laughs) gerrymandering for the same reason, right? Because if everyone had a vote, our government would look more like us. We would not always be run by white men with some white women tossed in for good measure, right? So how do you protect that from happening? (laughs) By anti-democratic policies. So how ironic, right, that both Islamists and Bangladesh and proponents and, and preferences of white pro- proponents of white privilege in the United States want the same thing. Same thing in yeah, India. I, just too, right? I haven't seen studies on it, and so I, I, I I'm I'm one of those. Okay. Intuitively, I would absolutely um, my in, my my gut tells me that yeah, but I don't I haven't seen studies on it, um, and the data that it would take to do this would be very difficult to collect in India. Right. Yeah. Because of diversity, that, such a that, so it, it is not. Yeah, that who would pay for it? Right. And like you suggested, 
um, India remains to be perhaps, <laughs> if not 26 countries, but at least oh, five, at least five I, countries. I mean, Uttar Pradesh at, itself at least, yeah. is larger than most European countries. Right. People just like it's Uttar Pradesh is like one right. of the biggest political entities in the world. Right. <laughs> so it's so the size of India That's is right. daunting. And so um, and to properly do this, uh, we would really have to oversample many of the states that have um, larger Muslim populations than not. It would just I, I mean, I've looked into this um, and I can't get anyone to to fund it because it's so, so, so prohibitive. Yeah. And so, uh, so so a couple of conclusions out of this paper. So you say we find considerable support for modernist assertions that education and urbanization positively correlate with tastes for democracy. Uh, but we find little evidence that economic standing does. Uh, but we just talked about um, that that taste for democracy <laughs> is related to um, yeah, expecting exactly. different outcomes. Yeah. It, it, you know, if you take initial conditions, initial, you take initial conditions and you say, you know, what's the mm -hmm. best path toward what I want to accomplish? Uh, you know, so that, that is what that, that really, uh, really means. And so you also say that our findings lend strong support for rational choice approaches to this puzzle. Respondents who want more uh, Sharia yeah. also prefer more yeah. democracy. So we talked about that. And while those who want more secularism yes. actually want less democracy. So, so on the surface, it's counterintuitive. But as you, as you described, <laughs> yes. it makes a lot of yes. intuitive sense, actually, once, one, <laughs> once you yes. understand the, yeah, the, the exactly. reasons why that's Very few things are truly counterintuitive. It just that means people don't have very good intuition about the case. <laughs> but like, so, for example, like, let, let's take hijab, right? It's one of my favorites because unless yeah. you hang out and with a lot of and varied polities where women wear hijab for different reasons, it's really easy to be very monotonal in your interpretation of it, right? But I mean, when I was a student, a yeah. uh, uh, couple of now was it 2015? Um, I was. Uh, did an internship or whatever. I, they gave me some position at some think tank in Mumbai. And I like to run. So I would wake up really early, crack dawn before yeah. it got too hot because <laughs> it was in the summer. Um, and I would go <laughs> running along Marine Drive. <laughs> at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, yeah. I would see young ladies in their hijabs with their boyfriends. Now, I'm fairly confident that those hmm. young ladies did not wake up at a quarter of five to take a marine beach stroll, <laughs> right? And so, one of the things that I, you know I'd been observing across South Asia because I am a South Asianist, I can't speak to other parts in the Muslim world. Just within South Asia, a lot of young girls are dressing like this as social camouflage, right? You know, the parents say, "Oh, you know, my baby, you know, she she would not run with the boys because look, they go ji." She only goes outside in this hijab. She is such a... Right? And, I, and I saw the same thing in Pakistan when I was teaching at Lums in Lahore. The girls that I were, were more likely to find at night um, <laughs> um, making out around the track were the hijabis, right? Because they were wearing it as social camouflage. Um, 
so you there's just, and then there are these big debates among uh hijabi women um there's funny expressions like there's the hojabi and the half jobby and the hojabi is the woman who wears her hijab to emphasize her sexuality um or as one might say in hindi sub you're wearing it but i still see everything um and and so, in other words, a sexualization of the of the hijab, uh, hijab you have uh, models, you have mm. runways of hijabi fashion, right? It it is just so right. not straightforward how to interpret hijabs because they're being they're being embraced for very different reasons. In in India, some young persons right. are espousing hijabs and skull caps because they. In the same way that even wealthy African Americans will still, they'll go to Macy's and buy a Macy's hoodie or Neiman Markets or wherever rich people go to buy things. I'm not. It's a, it's, it's a, a fashion. Fa it's a it's fashion, a fashion statement. statement that's associated with your identity, right? When it, when a when a wealthy African American man goes to wherever wealthy people shop to buy his hoodie, what he is saying is, I at the end of the day. If a cop pulls me over because I'm driving while black, my money doesn't protect me because they think I've stolen this car. <laughs> right. It's a statement. I can't buy my way out of my identity. Right. And so it's a it's an identity marker. Which has become a fashion statement. <laughs> so many Muslim youth in India are saying, I'm really tired of, of being told um, I have to blend in. I'm tired of being told I'm the one who has to assimilate when I see Hindu nationalism on the rise. And so they're deliberately espousing this identity. Right. Um, not to be in your face, which is what many Hindus will interpret it as, because I've heard them complain. Why do they have to be so in your face about it? Um, but no one ever asks Hindu nationalists, yeah. why are they so in your face about it? Um, but what they're actually doing is that they're signaling to other Muslims that they're not alone. It's a social solidarity. Right, right. Yeah. It's uh, so. So, so, so you have been studying these problems um, in in many parts of the world, uh, with a focus on on South Asia. Um, and so, in conclusion, let me ask you, Christine. So, based on everything that you know, based on all the trends that you see. Um, where do you think these countries are heading? And we talked about Pakistan and Bangladesh in specific. Uh, we know what is happening in India more generally. We know what's happening in the U.S. Uh, where do you think uh, we are heading toward? You know, if you, if you, you know, predictions are always a dangerous game. But, uh, but, but if you could, if you could speculate. So five I mean, years, I think Pakistan is now, pretty clear. I mean, I feel I, I've spent so much of my life in Pakistan. Um, and it's it is so structurally overdetermined by the military. Um, so we've essentially we're returning Afghanistan to Pakistan on a silver platter. Um, I anticipate that within a couple of years, um, Afghanistan is going to be an all-out civil war. Um, it, what will determine the pace of that happening will be whether or not the Americans continue funding the Afghan government. If it cuts off funding then we're going to see that outcome happen sooner than later. But probably within three to four years, Afghanistan is going to be right back to where it was, um, which is actually going to reward Pakistan, right? Um, 
Pakistan is already pretty emboldened by the moves that China has taken with respect to India over Doklam and other contestations. So um, I, right. I anticipate that um, when the Americans are no longer in Afghanistan, the pressure on Pakistan to even minimally suppress the jihadi activism in India is going to be taken away. Um, and what Pakistan always is looking for to keep its jihadis on the leash and not targeting the state is our attacks in Afghanistan and or India. So I'm, so Pakistan is, is pretty much where it's going to be. The army is going to be in control. The public are going to be told that the jihadis are doing good work um, and they will continue to support them. They'll continue to give their kids uh, to these jihadi organizations. So Pakistan and, and its neighbor in its neighborhood, pretty straightforward. And I think I, I'll say that with a 95 percent degree of certitude. <laughs> India. See, I actually have. I am not as fearful as, for India as some. And the reason for that is it's federalism. Right. So in Pakistan, it was very easy to appropriate the educational system and put in this nonsense about evil Hindus and, and uh, the great Muslim. It, it was very easy to do because of the over-centralization of the state. In India, um, that is not the case, right? You, for every state within the Indian Union, you have a state assembly. You have truly devolved ministries. And so the BJP, they just can't storm in. And also at the state level, you have very local political parties, right? So um, the BJP might very well still have, um, may still retain its mastery at the national level. It still needs coalition partners, right? And and people have a lot of right. choice at the level of the states. And the Supreme Court justices in India do not have that job forever. So even if they are today politically compromised, they have to retire at 60, right? So India, because of its genuine right. federalism and the federalism and the democratization of politics, it's going to take a lot more than this, right? To make to make India what the BJP wants it to be, there will always be pockets of resistance. Caste, right? Low caste are not signing on to this because low castes are treated like crap in this BJP universe. As are women, right? So we're already seeing women protesting um, their exclusion from temples. Where so there is so much resistance to the BJP juggernaut, which in any event, you know, draws from the, the juggernaut temple, <laughs> which, which has the square wheels on the chariot. Right? <laughs> in the United States, I'm much more afraid about the United States because um, what the scriptural literalists in the United States, you know, basically the Republican right. Party right. has captured them. And, and strict, yeah, but uh, I would argue they're not really strict constitutionalists, well. right? I mean, I mean, I, I, so when I, I when I look at the Federalist Papers, I've read them like everyone else. I'm like, I don't actually think the Federalists would support this. I, mean, yeah. I don't, I don't think the Federalists would truly support giving um, a corporation the same voice as a voting citizen, right? So what, what they call constitutionalism, what they you know the Federalist Society, what it's really become 
is an elite capture of elites, right? Representing and aggregating the interests of the America's truly wealthy while saying that they're doing this in the name of constitutionalism or originalism. But, you know, here's the other problem, and I'm not joking about this. Um, the problem with our constitution is that no, that the ordinary American cannot read it with comprehension, right? It's, it's very similar. I did this study um, right. uh, on, on uh, again, Pakistanis. The, the people who knew most about Islam were least susceptible to radicalization because they could read the Quran with understanding mm. and, and counter the ridiculous arguments of jihadist recruiters, which usually rely upon very poor exegesis of the Quran, right? There are very few Americans mm. who support these justices who can read that constitution with understanding and therefore they take their word for it. Right. And so um, and our uh, our judiciary has been packed for the rest of my lifetime. Um, we do not have right. regional parties in the United States. Right. We should. I don't know why every other parliamentary democracy in the world does, but we don't. We have two parties. And the other thing that makes me um, very worried about the future of this country for the for the lifetime I don't have kids. Otherwise, I would I would be I don't know. I'd be I'd be moved. I would move already. Is that the most unrepresentative body of our part of our parliament, which is the Senate, has all of the power. And that would be OK. Right. In a theoretical sense, if that minority were truly similar to the majority. But unfortunately, it's not. Um whether you look at education, whether you look at right. their beliefs, it is a minority that wants to foist their very narrow scriptural literalism upon the rest of the country. And it's buttressed by other mm -hmm. beliefs. Um, you know, I'm from the I'm from the Midwest. Like I'm from Indiana. Like I am from what I call uh, Talibanistan. Um, and, and so when I go to when I go to Pakistan, <laughs> I can't go back now, unfortunately. But whenever I would go and I would hang out with religious people there, I felt very much at home because the debates were the same, right? They, they, I mean, they did. They, they would say the same thing. If you're an atheist, how, why is it you're not having affairs on your husband and all this stuff? But, um, but they, um, and they also this is nurtured by the corollary, which is also empirically incorrect, that the so-called elite arugula eaters are living off of them. But in fact, the reverse is true, right? The socialism is going in the other direction. The productive elites on the coast are subsidizing the less productive Americans in the middle. And their politicians routinely lie to them and they're un either unable to look at the real data or they reject it if it's presented or three, they just don't care. They prefer the myth. So I think we are really right. Right, we're we're we are in deep duty in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. Um, I mean, there are two outcomes in nine days, and in one outcome, I think the predictions can be quite straightforward uh, for the for the um, you know for the future of democracy. In the other outcome, I think it's less certain. Um, 
even if you have a change in regime, um, I think, you know, it's <laughs> if you take control of an aircraft at 5,000 feet, uh, right, it's sometimes exactly. difficult to bring it back up again. So, so, so we'll see how it goes. Um, but I think, uh, I think that, I think we are, we are both agreeing, Christine, that, uh, the best thing we can do is to well, hang I mean, on that's and, not my uh, view. I'm not audience, enjoying so this ride. Um, it's like I, it's like when you see when you're on an airplane, it's crashing. <laughs> well, I'm just going to I'm going to enjoy the ride down. Oh, hell no. I'm going to be screaming and pissing myself until I am unconscious <laughs> and put out of my misery. But I, I mean, I uh, I have a lot of fears for the United States. Uh, we just don't have the institutional resilience that other parliament, other parliamentary democracies that are going through this phase of white supremacy and authoritarianism, they'll bounce back because they don't have lifetime court appointments. They have more than two political parties and they have politics that are different, right? Mm -hmm. At national and subnational levels. I mean, once one potential solution to the American puzzle is in fact genuine federalism, which is we essentially have the rise of city states. But what, what's fascinating, right, the conservatives right. who have long maintained, oh, no, no big government, um, we should have devolution of powers, they're the ones who are opposing this, right, because they they see that we've already had city-states try to do this, right? Oh, no, no, you have to, you have to do this. And we're like, um, how about that whole federalism thing that you guys really, really loved when a Democrat was running the country? Right. Um, but I think that's really the only way forward is that we have genuine devolution um, and that the states. And so basically the states become a market. Right. If I don't like living in Talibanistan, I right. can move. And the good news is that all of the jobs right. that are desirable are not in Talibanistan. Right. So the, the Americans can sort themselves. Right into the kind of communities in which they want to leave, live. But my fear is that um, Trumpism has really eroded support for federalism because they see that such genuine devolution is a way to undercut their authoritarianism when it comes to who can vote, for example. They do not want to leave that to city-states, right? Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the the only silver line in the in the whole uh, nightmare for me is there is a significant demographic shift. Um, you know, if we survive through a period of let's say five years, five to ten years, the next generation uh, mm -hmm. appears to be in a much better position, yeah. both in terms of you know their views, um, how they internalize information, how they analyze information. And so once our generations sort of check out, so to speak, uh, things will improve. Uh, but, but the question is whether we are able to survive yeah. the transition of five to 10 years. Yep. If let's not, hope, until the, um, for, let's hope until the, the best, best materializes uh, or not, there's always whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, 
please reach out to info@scientificsense.com. at